verses 1 through 4 this morning. There are some churches of Jesus Christ that have the fault of tending toward what I'm going to call slippage in their obedience to God and spiritual deterioration in their following of God, provided that is that they started where they were supposed to start, and that is in a full belief of God and doing things the way they were supposed to do. One of my professors in seminary said, there is no organization that starts out conservative that ever ends that way. And so that's always a danger. That's something we want to look out for, that are we where we were when we started in terms of our commitment to God, our commitment to the truth of God's word and what God wants us to do? Uh, There are those who started and uh, they have been faltering since their inception, giving in to the world and giving in uh, to teachings that don't belong in the Bible. Individually, we can also stray away from where we ought to be uh, when it comes to living for the Lord. So it's not just something that the church needs to fight for and, and stay close to God and do the things that God wants us to do. It's not just that. But it's also an individual struggle that you and I face every day with decisions that we make every day about, am I going to follow God? Am I going to do what's right? Am I going to stay strong with him? Or am I going to just let things slide a little bit in this direction? Well, the Bible declares that God blesses people for living the way he wants them to live. So one of the reasons we go over the do's and don'ts in the Bible, one of the reasons we go over what the rules are that God has given us, one of the reasons we talk about that is because we believe that everybody in here would like to have God bless their life. Everybody in here would like God's blessing on on your life and his grace to be yours. And the Bible says the way you can do what you need to do to get that is obey God and do what he tells you to do. And so it's it's an issue of God's love for us and his grace for us that he tells us how to live in the kind of world that we live in. So we review those things. We talk about those things. What should we do and what should we not do? Because we want the Lord's favor to rest upon us because the Lord's favor rests upon those who are certain kinds of believers. The other other side of that is that God does not bless those who are not where they should be living for him, and especially those who know what they should be doing, but they just refuse to do it. Now, I want to see an example of that with you, and so if you'll go back uh, to the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 3, I want to read what uh, the Spirit of God had to say Uh, to the church at Laodicea. All right, so he's talking to the church at Laodicea, starting in verse 14. And he says, I know your deeds in verse 15, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So churches can be hot in terms of their obedience to God and their following God, or they can be cold. They can be completely icebergs to what God wants them to do. And so the Spirit goes on to say in verse 16, so because you're lukewarm, which is in the middle between hot and cold, you're just lukewarm, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, God says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and by the way, they mean that in terms of 
not only their spiritual position, but they obviously have some money and they have some wealth and they're starting to depend on those things and have need of nothing. In other words, if you're rich, you sometimes tend to think, I don't need God for anything because I can take care of my own problems. This is what that church was partially doing. And you do not know that you are, uh uh-oh, wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. What a letter to receive to your church, right? You You think you're wealthy, you think everything's going okay, you don't have need of anything, and God shows up on your doorstep, and he says, in fact, you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He goes on to say, I advise you to buy from me, so it's the Spirit of God speaking, gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich. And he's not talking about metal. He's not talking about literal gold. He's talking about a different kind of wealth. So that you may become rich. And white garments, which is always in the Bible a sign of somebody's purity and their righteousness. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed in the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now he says what basically the author of the book of Hebrews said. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, I don't think that's a call to salvation at all because of the context it's in. I think what he's talking to is someone who is a believer And that believer needs to come back into fellowship with God and and get right with God. He who overcomes, which is a key word in the book of Revelation, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Now I want you to think about that. God is giving us the do's and the don'ts, and he asks you to be one who, who does what you're supposed to do and don't do what you're not supposed to do. And look at the reward for somebody who does that. Somebody who does that will sit on a throne with God and there's going to be all kinds of things that take place in terms of uh, judging others and those kinds of things when we get to heaven. He says, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he wants us to pay attention. He wants us to learn. He wants us to know, why is it that you want me to do good? Why is it you want me to keep the rules? And he said, because there's great reward for those who do. God isn't against us. He is for us. God isn't trying to make our life so it doesn't have any fun. The Bible says that if you don't know God and you're not doing life his way, you really don't know what fun is. Well, I'm going to jump back into our text in Matthew 5, 1 to 4. And I want to read uh, those four verses. And we're going to see the beginning of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it says in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowd, so we know that uh, there were large crowds from verse 25 of chapter 4 that were following Jesus everywhere, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and they're coming from uh, distant places, and he has a big crowd there. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he's on this mountaintop. There's all these crowds following. He goes up on the mountain and he sits down. Why does he sit down? Because that's the proper position for a rabbi to teach. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Now, we're going to uh, break up the part of the sermon, I think Brad mentioned this, that's called the Beatitudes. And we're going to look at this very carefully because I want you to understand what's being said there as best as I can help you do that. And I want you to know what these Beatitudes are about. And I want you to notice that they all begin with the word uh, blessed until you get down to verse 12. And he says, rejoice and be glad. So if I want to be blessed of God and I want to see where in the Bible I have that positive blessing, I just look at these verses and it says, blessed, 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 blessed. And it goes on and on. Do I want to be blessed of God? Well, then just do what he tells you to do. Be what he wants you to be. And you'll be blessed of God. It's a very positive thing. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus, through whom God speaks, the Spirit of God speaks through Jesus to mankind, sat down on the mountain to teach. Now, Jesus is fully God. And he is also fully man. I just had a phone call from somebody yesterday trying to figure out uh, how is it that God could die on the cross? And the answer is God didn't die on the cross. Jesus was one man with two natures and his humanity died. God can't die, but if Jesus' humanity died, it counts as a death and it is a death and he was raised to life, but God never died. Jesus is God, but remember we talked about the fact that Jesus completely relied on the Spirit of God for everything he did, everything he said, and all of his power. He relied on God. Did he have to? No. He's God. He could have done everything himself, but he relied on the Spirit of God. Then he tells the disciples, you see all these works that I've done, how great they are? You'll do greater works than I did because I'm going to send the Spirit of God, and he's going to indwell you. And you're going to have the same power to do the things that I did that God gave me. Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that God gave you the Spirit of God when you trusted Christ as your Savior? And if we submit to him, if we live for him, he will empower us. But we don't want to, we don't want to be the kind of person that, that sins openly against God and we cause his work in us to be stifled. That would be the best word I could say. And God wants to use you, and he wants to bless you. And these are just things about how we can be blessed of God. So Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 is all known as the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon begins with what we call the Beatitudes, and that's the the word blessed there. Now, why do we call it the Beatitudes? It's in verses 3 through 12. The word is related to a Latin word, beatus, And the word beatus means blessed. It is God's favor towards us. So we use that particular Latin word and we draw from that. This is called the beatitudes. It's just like the church is uh, looking forward to a rapture. We get that from another Latin word, raptura, which means to catch out. The Greek word in the text in 1 Thessalonians 5 means to be caught up. And so we've just used the Latin phrase rapture. Well, right here, the Beatitudes are named after the Latin word beatus, and it just means blessed. In verse 1, Jesus saw the crowds, and this was an opportune time for him to do what he came for. Remember what he said he came for last time? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God has this, uh, this great big huge crowd from all over the area, and they have come to listen to him. This is his opportunity to teach them what God wants them to know and to teach them about the peace and the grace and the good news of the kingdom of God and how they can be a part of it. So he goes up on the side of a mountain to teach. Now, um, as somebody that's done a lot of backpacking up in the Rockies and stuff, 
I can tell you that when you're in a mountainous area and on a mountain range, uh, you can get your voice to go down in the valley easily. You can get it to come up. And I think acoustically, he's probably in the best place that he could be to teach these big crowds. He's up on this mountain. Not as high as the Rockies, but a mountain nonetheless. There is in the minds of many a connection here to the Old Testament. It says purposely, did, did we really need to know he went up on a mountain to teach? No. Uh, he could have just said and Jesus sat down and taught the, the crowds that had followed him. But he doesn't. He tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain. And, and many scholars believe, and I happen to believe, that Matthew is trying to make a, a, a connection here. Somebody else went up on a mountain and got the word of God so he could teach the word of God. And that guy was Moses. Moses went up on the mount, Mount Sinai, uh, Mount Horeb, it's also called, and he got the word of God and he brought it down to teach the people. Remember, when Israel left the land of Egypt, God called his son Israel out of Egypt and they failed at evangelism and they failed at following him. God sent another son to Egypt, Jesus Christ. Remember, he lived down there with his parents to stay safe from Herod. He wanted to kill him. And then Jesus called, was called out of Egypt as God's son. Now he is doing what Moses did, and he's going up on this mountain to teach the people the word of God. He is the new Moses. He is the prophet that Moses foretold in his prophecy that he would come. Moses commanded them that God will raise up a prophet like me, and when he does, listen to him. And remember in the Bible, listen doesn't just mean, oh yeah, I heard what he said. No, listen means I heard what he said, and then I do what he tells me to do. I act on it. Listening in the Bible never means I just hear the words. If I just hear the words, I haven't listened, I haven't heard. Hearing in the Bible means I heard it, and now I'm going to do something about it. It's not just something I heard, it's something I'm going to do. And that's the importance of this word. And Moses said, listen to him in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is the prophet that Moses said that God would raise up, and when he does, you better listen to him. Why? Because he has the words of life. He's the son of God. It was common for a rabbi in those days to sit down when they taught while they were instructing their students. Uh, let's just note this. Jesus came to call people to the Father in his first coming. So we call that the first advent of Christ. This is where he took on flesh, and he came to the earth. That's the first advent. In the second coming, he is not coming to do what he did the first time. He's coming to judge. So we believe that there's going to be a rapture of the church before the great tribulation. And that means all of God's children all around the globe and all those who have died since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, the church, until he comes back, will rise up out of their graves. And then we with them will go meet the Lord in the air. That's not the second coming. Because in the second coming, his feet come down to the earth and they touch the Mount of Olives. And when he does, the, the earth splits in half there, and that's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And, and there's people that are going to escape Jerusalem and all the bad stuff that's going on there through the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He's going to save some people. And then God's going to round up all the unbelievers of the earth, and he's going to throw them in the great wine press of the wrath of God, and he will trample out their blood until it flows as deep as the bit of a horse's bridle for 200 miles out from Jerusalem. That's a whole different issue. That's the second coming of Christ. It's not the rapture. But in the second coming, he comes to judge the world's sinners. He will sit for that judgment. 
Matthew 19, 28 tells us that. We don't have a lot of verses to look up this morning, so let's go ahead and look up Matthew 19, 28. If you want to, you don't have to. This is the free church. All right, 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you have, follow, you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we've already talked a little bit about those who follow Jesus end up on a throne. As Jesus said, I ended up on the throne with my father. He means a position of ruling. And then there will be judgment. Now, the Bible teaches that you and I will judge demonic angels. And we also will be a part of the judgment of some fallen people as well. And here they're judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We should learn to hear him, that is Jesus, and do what he asks us to do so that on that judgment day we will be in a desirable position with him and not in an undesirable one. If you sit with the teacher now, you will be able to stand before him as a judge one day. And by sitting to the te- with the teacher, I mean you hear what Jesus says and you do what Jesus says. That means you're a true believer. If you hear only but you don't do, that's a problem. In verse 2, Jesus opens his mouth and he begins to teach the disciples that are gathered in the crowds. Jesus is instructing and teaching people what they need to know spiritually as those who would follow God. Jesus is always interested in the people that are hearing him following him. He wants them to follow along with him and he wants them to go where he's going to go because he loves you and he wants to be with you for the rest of eternity. Everything that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is inspired scripture, right? God breathed. It is written down for us as the words of God by God. Now, we have an advantage and a disadvantage. We get to take our time. If we want to, with every word in the Sermon on the Mount, we can can study it and understand it, and that's different than the people that were there that day. I just happen to know that people can hear a sermon and sometimes not even remember by the time they get in their car what it was about, all right? That's discouraging for preachers, all right? But the point is, how would you like to have been there on that mountainside and you got to hear this once? And then you're looking at your, your spouse or something or your friend and you say, what was that one part that he was talking about there about blessed are the, what was that? Well, you know, he, this is a three-chapter sermon. It, it's a long one. How's anybody going to remember that? We have the privilege then, on the other hand, even though we weren't there, that was a privilege, to be able to study it closely and to understand what Jesus is saying. His understanding of Scripture is perfect, exacting, and without error. And I just can't imagine what it would be like to hear the perfect teaching of Jesus Christ, his perfect application. And those are not people there that are recording it on their cell phones. Uh, they don't have iPads that they're writing it down with. Uh, they don't even have papyrus and pen and ink that they can write down notes. These are people that are following Jesus. They're out on a hillside. There's no PA system. And they're listening to the teaching of the greatest teacher in all of the universe. This teacher, to him, there is no passage that he does not understand. There is no application of his that is somehow imperfect. It's all perfect. It is accurately reflecting the very purpose of God who gave it to him to preach. And we struggle to understand what he said that day. Even today, people struggle. What did he really mean here? What did he mean there? Uh, 
thousands of comments on this passage because the Beatitudes are very popular. You know why they're popular? Because he says, blessed are you if you do this. It's better than listening about you're going to be judged if you do this. So people spend more time with it, right? We struggle to understand what he means. Thousands of comments on this passage have been made. People have dedicated their lives to just the Beatitudes, not only knowing what he said, but what he meant by it. Well, what Jesus said was perfect. What he meant by it was perfect. It's up to us to figure out what he said because we are studying the word of God. There's disagreement between Bible teachers about what he means, even uh, in terms of what we're going to say here today, just two Beatitudes. Imagine the people who were there. They heard it once, and Jesus went on. You have to wonder what they thought he was talking about and what they remembered and what they applied to their life. Well, that's interesting, but that's not the point. What are you going to remember? What are you and I going to apply to our lives as a result of this text? So in verse 3, our first beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor. And by the way, it's such a wonderful thing that he added the next two words because then we'd have more arguments about what it meant, but we don't have as many because he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, we understand that everybody who is in the kingdom of heaven is a person who was poor in spirit. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What helps us interpret this beatitude is the fact that Jesus defined poverty for us. It's not the Laodicean church. It's not those who, God's blessed them, they have money. And they said, well, we, we can take care of everything we need to because we have money. And Jesus said, do you realize how wretchedly poor you are? And your wealth is in the wrong place? And you need to get your act straightened out with me, he says to the Laodicean church. And then you'll be where you need to be. He said those who are poor in spirit. A person is poor in spirit when they have nothing to offer spiritually. They have nothing to offer God that would be, in his eyes, something that he would say, wow, that's, that's significant, that's fantastic, and I'm going to let you into heaven based on what you have shown me here. Mm, no, there is nothing like that. That, uh, that is different than him talking about those who have no money in this world. So what does it mean? A person is poor in spirit. This is someone, so here's the definition, right? This is someone who consciously depends on God. It is one who knows that in and of themselves they do not have at all what they need to please God. It's somebody that shows up before the, the feet of Jesus, let's say that, and says, Jesus, I would like salvation. I would like to go to heaven when I die. I would like to have your blessing on my life. And, and if Jesus were to say, what do you offer me? And those who are poor in spirit say, I have nothing, not a thing that I can offer you. I can't offer you any good works. I can't offer you how much money I've given to the church. I can't offer you this. I can't offer you that. You, Lord, you're just going to take me with nothing. I have nothing. And Jesus is trying to teach these folks and us that a person who is poor in spirit is a person who can be saved because they're not trying to give Jesus stuff for their salvation because Jesus doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't need it. It's worthless, as a matter of fact. We'll talk about that in a minute. We do not have what, it need, what we need to please God. People that can admit that are where they need to be before Jesus. Since they have nothing spiritually to offer, 
they are those who must totally rely on God. I shared a quote uh, that came from the head of the UN's uh, Food and Hunger Project in my Sunday school class this morning. And basically, he said this, it is getting to the place in the world where we're going to have to take food from those who are hungry to feed those who are starving. So we have people that have all the food they want. We have people that are hungry and people that are starving. And what Jesus wants us to understand spiritually is that people who think they have all they need to eat, like what they had in Laodicea, have nothing. And those who are hungry aren't hungry enough. They need to be starving spiritually and say to Jesus, I, I'm on my last leg as far as figuring out this salvation thing. I have nothing to offer. And Jesus says, you're in just the right place. We can't rely on ourselves. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6. I use that enough. Probably some of you have it memorized, right? Okay, I have it memorized, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up anyway. I thought somebody would say amen or something, but we're not Baptists, are we? Okay, Isaiah 64, 6 that says, for all of us have become like, like one who is unclean. Now, when he says all of us, he means all of us. All our righteous deeds are as filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf. Our iniquity, like the wind, takes us away. Hmm. I have nothing righteous to offer God, period. I can't look at my neighbor and say, you know, God, I'm better than that person. So when it comes to coming to you, I, I do have something. I'm better than, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of anybody here is named Joe. I'm better than Joe Blow over here. And Jesus says, no, you're not. All your righteousness is like filthy rags, just like his. And then Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we do have that memorized. For by faith, we've been saved. That's not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any person can boast. You can't brag about how you saved yourself. There's nothing to brag about. It was all Jesus. And then 2 Timothy 1, 9, look at that. In 2 Timothy 1.9, it says, He who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. When did Jesus, if you're one of his children right now, when did Jesus grant you his grace? This says before the foundations of the world. I didn't do it on my own. It wasn't by my own will, my initiative, my smarts, my intelligence. It was all of God. We must be poor in spirit to be saved. We must recognize, God, I have nothing to offer you. And this is for salvation that is eternal. And yet, Jesus wanted us to know at the la in the last book of, uh, of the Bible, in the last chapter, he says this, the spirit, meaning the spirit of God, and the bride, that's the church, say come, and let the one who hears say come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes, uh, who wishes take the water of life, and then those wonderful words at the end, without cost, without cost. There is no cost for salvation. God doesn't ask you for anything because you and I are poor of spirit. We have nothing to give. That's where salvation comes from, the free grace of God. And it is free. It is at no cost. This is what the Laodiceans had forgotten about. 
Physical wealth is a way of taking our eyes off of the wealth that God wants us to offer. God, when he offered them uh, true gold, he didn't mean literally gold uh, as in the metal, but he meant, I want to offer you that which is valuable, which is a personal relationship with him and a walk with him. God offers true wealth, and it has to do with this issue of righteousness. In James chapter 2 and verse 5, He says, listen, my beloved, a term reserved in the New Testament for believers. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Some people teach that that means it's poor people in the world that don't have any money. No, he's talking about those who are poor who realize I have nothing to offer you for my salvation. Completely destitute. And poor. So we come to Jesus and we know we have nothing to offer for sins. We can't buy our way out of the mess of sin that we are in. We can't be good enough to get out. We are spiritually bankrupt without Christ. And if you could buy your way, I just think about that. If Jesus was asking you to pay your way out of your sins, what's he going to do with all that money? Does he need it? Isn't it all his in the first place? What a ridiculous thought that I can buy my own salvation or work my way to get my salvation. So Jesus said this, and ask yourself if you came to Christ, did I come poor in spirit? Nothing to offer him. And I threw myself on his grace and his mercy. Then he says, blessed in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the ones who mourn because they have something to look forward to. It's God's comfort. People have disagreed about what this means. And here's a list of people. They said, okay, when he's talking about mourning, this is what he's talking about. Personal sin, personal pain from affliction and persecution, uh, personal or mourning over grief over the sins of others, or grief over the sins of the whole world, and grief over the affliction from the world that comes from serving God and his kingdom in a hostile land, and on and on it goes. Uh, you, you have to wonder what the average man or woman thought that day sitting on the side of that mountain when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. You know what I think happened? Every person that was there had some kind of pain in their heart or some kind of issue in their life, as we all do at times, right? Maybe all the time you could come up with, if I said today, tell, don't do this, but tell me one thing right now that's bothering you, that you have a problem with, that's causing you pain in life, that you, you're, you're weeping over. I'm pretty sure everybody could come up with something. Maybe Jesus meant it so that when you heard that, he was trying to say to us, uh, what if it doesn't matter what the mourning is caused by, the crying is caused by, the pain in your heart? What if Jesus was just concerned about that pain, whatever it is, that suffering, whatever it is, and the tears of those who are following him? What if he just cares about whatever it is? And I really think the truth is that that's what he is saying. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, For whatever reason, you care about other people, you care about God, there's pain in the world, whatever your mourning is, you're blessed because you will be comforted. You'll be comforted. Comfort is the word parakaleo, which means to call to another. It is a Greek future passive. In other words, as this happens in the future, you're mourning, you're crying, your tears, God will do something about it. Not you, it's passive. You don't do it, but God does it for you. The comfort is coming in the future, and it will be done by God to us. 
just want to consider a couple of verses here from the Psalms. The first one uh, that you're very familiar with is Psalm 51, where David is uh, pleading uh, for God to forgive him from his sin and adultery and murder with, uh, with and uh, or about Bathsheba. And David says this in 51.17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. I think that means a humble spirit. A broken, and the word contrite in Hebrew really means crushed heart. O God, you will not despise. See, we come to God, we can offer nothing, we have nothing, he gives us everything. And when we have pain in our life, he cares about that too. And I don't think it has to be a certain pain. I think it could be any pain in in the life of one of his children he cares about. And then that leads me to the second one, which is in Psalm 147, verse 3. He says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He didn't say, what broke your heart? He didn't say anything about that. It doesn't matter. He'll bind up your wounds. So no matter how bad the storms of life may be for the people of God, God is able to comfort us. It is not all in the distant future either. We can do that now. 1 Peter 5, 7 teaches us, casting all your anxiety, all your cares upon him, Why would I cast my anxiety on him? Why would I cast my cares on him? Peter tells us, casting all your anxiety on him. For, because, or since, he cares for you. He cares for you. Yes, he cares for every Christian, but could you just make that personal today? He cares for you. He is interested in you. And he's going to watch over you. And he will comfort you. And that's one of the great reasons why we want to be the kind of people that Jesus wants us to be. Because I would rather be comforted by God than judged by God. I think you would agree. Well, let's look at uh, about three applications here. Number one, and by the way, I need to make a correction. As I look back on my uh, commentary that I have in a certain series on Matthew, it's Dr. Turner that I've been quoting and not Dr. Comfort, so I need to make that, so you can just change all that comfort to Dr. Turner. Um, He said this, apart from Christ, we are spiritually powerless and bankrupt. Apart from Christ, we're spiritually powerless and bankrupt. If you want salvation and you come to Jesus, you need to be poor and have nothing to offer him, and he'll give you everything. Number two, we can't come to Christ to offer anything for our salvation, but faith. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then God will bless us. And thirdly, indescribable comfort of hearts awaits for us when we see Jesus and is available to us, verse 4, before we see him. I think that's something to take comfort in, don't you? I only have a sermon that has a front and a back. Usually I have a front and a back and another page. And I thought, they're going to be so happy with me when I let them out 10 minutes early. And apparently I just keep talking. So it's going to be close, but sorry. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you have alerted us to the fact that we can't save ourselves. We have nothing to offer you that would pay for our sins. And instead, you suffered death on the cross in our behalf, in our place. And all we have to do is accept that free gift by faith. And it is without cost to those of us who are starving to death spiritually before we come to you. Thank you, thank you that you fill us with your love and your care. And thank you that you have set before us the way of life and the way of death. And may we be those who choose the life of blessing, the life of hearing you and acting upon what we hear. And we also want to thank you that as those who do that, you heal the brokenhearted and you set the captives free. Because although we were poor in spirit, we were bound for the fires of hell and you took all of that away for free. We're so thankful. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. rise for our closing song, We Believe.
Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for, um, for salvation. Lord, thank you that um, it comes without cost, that we don't have to um, pay anything or uh, work our way towards it. But thank you, Lord, for that free gift. If only we have faith and believe. Thank you, Lord, so much for the comfort that you provide for us each and every day in any situation, Lord. And I pray that we would, that we would be a people that bring those um, hardships to you, Lord, that we would cast every care upon you, that you would provide comfort for us in every situation in life. Lord, I pray that you'd go with us this week as we go from this place and watch over us and keep us safe until next week when we return, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.